The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The awareness of dual use, yeah, it wasn't there at all, Tia. It was. It wasn't even part of the vocabulary until we gave this presentation. I mean, I, I was just thinking misuse, right? Misuse was the word, right? And even misuse, why would you misuse a technology? Like, because you're trying to make things work better. You're always driven to make a better model, whether that's an in vitro model or an in silico model. You're not really trying to misuse those technologies. I mean, honestly, ethically, you want to try to make something better. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't even a word that was there. I mean, I don't think I've ever written any papers or articles or anything with the words dual use in until we wrote this particular small comment. And now obviously dual use is in the vocabulary. I'm Tia Sewell, Associate Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 26, 2022. Back in March, a team of researchers published an article in Nature Machine Intelligence showing that a drug discovery company's AI-powered molecule generator could have a dangerous dual use. The model could design thousands of new biochemical weapons in a matter of hours that were equally as toxic as, if not more toxic than, the nerve agent VX. I sat down with two of the paper's authors, Dr. Philip Alenzos, Senior Lecturer in Science and International Security at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, and Dr. Sean Ekins, CEO of Collaborations Pharmaceuticals. We discussed the story of their discovery and their reaction to it, as well as how we should think about dual-use artificial intelligence threats more broadly as these technologies expand the potential for malicious use. We also got into why governments need to more proactively work to address the challenges of regulating machine learning software. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 26th, Sean Ekins and Philip Lorenzos on a teachable moment for dual use. So to start off, Sean, could you give us a bit more background on Collaborations Pharmaceuticals and explain what Megasyn is, why and when it was originally created, and how it works? Uh, absolutely. Um, well, we're based in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're a small company, uh, currently about nine people. And uh, our focus as a company since we started really has been to use uh, machine learning technologies to help uh, discover and develop small molecule drugs for rare and neglected diseases. And so the the thinking initially was that these are diseases that primarily don't have a lot of research and, and also funding. And so perhaps we could differentiate ourselves as a company from all the other thousands of drug discovery companies that are out there. Uh, by working on them and try to make a a dent in, I guess, making progress. And uh, the thinking behind using the machine learning approaches were that we would be able to generate data ourselves as well as leverage whatever public data is in databases that are out there that's freely available. 
and try to use that to uh, increase the efficiency of finding molecules. That's how we started uh, thinking about, you know, how do we build the software, leverage open source software, leverage open source data, and really use that along with data we could generate ourselves to try to move along research uh, in these areas. And after years of doing this, several years of doing this, we were talking to several pharmaceutical company clients, potential clients, and they kept asking us, could you develop software that would enable the design of new molecules as opposed to perhaps just using the models to score libraries of existing molecules that are commercially available? And so we heard this enough times that we realized, okay, there's a market there. The, the tools may be pretty nascent and publicly available for doing this, but the, there actually isn't a product, right? And, and so we thought, okay, this is something we could start to put in grants. And in order to put those grants together, we needed some preliminary work. So um, Fabio, who had just joined the group, was really interested in this whole area of generative machine learning. And so he started to look at what technologies were out there in the public domain and try to piece something together and run sort of command line software. So this is not like a finished product. And so that be became the genesis, I guess, of Megasyn. And so we put together a few example test examples as we were talking to different companies. And so we had this Megasyn background and, you know, we're always looking for ways in which we could use it and uh, obviously integrate some of the machine learning models that we built for various toxicity endpoints because we had spent several years working on modeling tox. And so we thought, okay, this Megasyn is a good starting point to design molecules. Now can we actually use this along with our machine learning models to actually optimize the properties? So that's pretty much the, the start of it. And then obviously, you know, we got to, we got to this point where we had this opportunity to to use it for something that we'd never really thought about before. Obviously, hadn't uh, hadn't even had it on the radar. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanna I wanna dive into that. So last year, Collaborations Pharmaceuticals was invited to present at the Spiez conference in Switzerland, and that's a meeting that focuses on the latest advances in biotech and you know explores their potential implications for international security. So as I understand it, your team was asked to explore how AI Megasyn could be used to design toxic molecules. And that was a thought experiment that ultimately led you guys to a really disturbing finding. Can you walk us through that story in more detail? Absolutely. So the, I guess the initial start for it was uh, the invitation to present on the potential misuse of uh, AI technologies that we use. And so I'd left it pretty much until a couple of weeks before the actual time for presentation. And so I put together an, a quick email to Fabio Avina, who's a colleague on this work. And I had three examples of potential projects that uh, could be used to, to test you know, the misuse of technologies. Uh, the first was basically, could we uh, show that our generative approaches could make VX and analogs of VX? And we would leverage some of the toxicology models that we had for acetylcholinesterase inhibition and rat acute oral toxicity. Uh, the other two examples were, you know, potentially equally as uh, impactful, but I think the readiness with which uh, we could actually produce that example, because we already had the pre-existing models for acetylcholinesterase and rat oral LD50, and that made it, I think, more compelling for Fabio to just go ahead and do that. And, you know, it didn't take a lot of time for him to plug those models in and, you know, 
press run on the software and, and literally overnight he was able to generate the data. And so, you know, we came in the next day, uh, I looked at the molecules, you know, over his shoulder, he had already been sort of analyzing the output. And what came out of it to me, you know, looked very compelling in, in terms of they look like potential chemical weapons. They look like either pesticides or uh, chemical weapons in that they had, a, you know, the warhead on them. And, you know, I was kind of shocked that we had so many. And Fabio was going through and looking to see uh, if any of them were in, you know, public databases. And he was able to find a, a few molecules. Uh, obviously, he was able to find some precursors as well. And so at that point, I was kind of, okay, well, we can, we can just call it, you know, call this good for this example. And the next stage was really to try to produce a visualization of what was done. And this is all very abstract in the sense that it's all done on the computer, right? The, the computer is basically building these molecules, you know, atom by atom and scoring them and then trying to figure out, do they have good scores and are they likely to be, you know, inhibitors of acetylcholinesterase and also likely to have toxicity against the, the rat. Um, and obviously we don't have human toxicity, so we have to use the rat data. And so when we're looking at the molecules, they're just a smile string, uh, uh, which is a uh, literally a one-dimensional string of atoms. And so he has to visualize them so that they actually look like small molecules. So he would paste the smile string into another piece of software to visualize them. And so, you know, once he had a few of these pasted into the software, we could sort of browse through them. And, and I think it was that realization that we had so many of these kind of interesting molecules. I really didn't want to go any further, but I wanted to visualize this. So we had an idea of chemistry space, like, you know, this is 40,000 molecules. How can we show that on a plot? And Fabio had been looking at these uh, T-SNE type plots. And so we use those uh, as a way to visualize you know, all the molecules. So you don't actually see molecules, you just see a dot in a, in a 2D plot. And uh, obviously we can visualize the molecules that are in the RAT LD50 data set. And VX is, is way outside of, of that space, that chemical space. And it's kind of interesting that Megasim was able to explore a lot of space around VX. And then there were a kind of a sprinkling of molecules that were in the space that was really uh, sort of the LD50 data. So we just had a couple of graphs, visualizations, and then also kind of a distribution of the, the molecular properties of the 40,000 or so molecules. And that was pretty much it. And I left a placeholder in the presentation uh, for the SPIES conference and asked Fabio to just, you know, send me some slides. And long story short, he, he sent me a couple of slides and I put one of them in, into the presentation. And that was what was ultimately given. And that same slide with a, maybe a few edits ultimately ended up being published. It was the quickest experiment we've ever done and probably the most impactful. But we didn't actually know at the time how impactful it was until we gave the presentation and then obviously the reactions at the, the conference. Uh, to us, it was just another test case of, you know, can we design the molecules? I mean, it's a really fascinating finding, right? Like the AI was basically able to generate tens of thousands of plausible chemical warfare agents within, I think you note, six hours. Um, and just for the listeners, VX, right, is a nerve agent, incredibly toxic. Um, and so all of these molecules, some even more toxic than the publicly known weapons at present, were the output, um, where you're finding, as you say, that people were reacting so strongly to. 
Were you partially surprised by the capacity of the molecule generator to produce biological weapons, considering the data sets that you used to train Megasyn didn't actually include any toxic agents? Yes, I was. Um, and the immediate reaction was kind of the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You know, this was remarkably easy to do. We obviously, we had all of the pieces in place, right? We had the software, we had the data sets that uh, we used, which were obviously public, uh, we'd published on them ironically, separately. Uh, hadn't thought that putting them together could be potentially synergistic or were used in this way. And so there was this immediate sense of we've kind of opened Pandora's box and let's close it. I don't want to do anything else. Let's just put the presentation together. I mean, that was the goal, right? We were just wanted to do a, a quick and dirty experiment. We didn't even think of it at that time as a thought experiment that came, you know, much later through discussions with uh, Philippa and Cedric, you know, it really didn't hit us that we were looking at dual use. We, we didn't think that, you know, this was going to be a, an experiment in the sense it was more of a okay let's just illustrate how we can use the technology and in this case obviously misuse the technology and it was a fast way to do it and we could have picked another molecule other than vx but vx seemed to be something that was on the tip of my tongue i guess when i was writing the email and then i thought when i'd seen the results okay this could be you know quite easily transferred to other molecules and if we could do it for VX, you know, why couldn't we do it for others? Okay, we just have to stop those thoughts. So there was kind of an inner voice as soon as we were seeing the data saying, okay, let's just stop. I, we're not going to go further. We cannot use this, you know, in the sense that I don't want to be making VX. I don't want to, I don't want to be thinking, okay, we, we're going to move into the business of making chemical weapons. That's not what we're trying to do. And, and so there's always this kind of, you know, another voice there saying, all right, this is, potentially bad. Uh, let's just stop. And uh, we didn't actually look at the data again uh, until actually quite recently, you know, months later and you know, over six months later, because, you know, there was that, I guess, compulsion that, you know, if we look at it, what's it going to lead to? What are we going to do next? And obviously the, there were still some other insights in there that we didn't capture because we were so quick on you know, generating the data, quickly looking to see, yeah, we made VX, we made some other molecules. We didn't actually really dig deep into them, um, but that was enough. Yeah. And so, Philippa, I want to move to you. As, you know, an expert in this space, what was your reaction when you saw the presentation at first? And then also, as you guys note in a follow-up to your article, responses have really varied quite widely to your research. And a lot of people have questioned why you published um, and whether the details of the experiment should have even been published at all. So, you know, I'd like to start with you. Did you hesitate to create a publication out of this? And ultimately, like, how do you respond to the questions of justifying that decision? Thanks, Tia. It's good to be with you. Well, I do very vividly remember when Sean gave the presentation sort of the, the the jaw drop in the room was fairly palpable from the expert community. I think primarily because this was, you know, such a clear case. It was such a powerful example of uh, dual use. On your question about whether we hesitated to publish this, uh, you know, this, this is a very good question. Publishing the thought experiment certainly wasn't straightforward. But I'm not sure hesitate is quite the right characterization because, I mean, to me, it was very obvious and, and really to the whole team um, that the thought experiment was this very 
powerfully concrete and, and also easily accessible example of a dual use risk. And we were keen to harness the power and accessibility of the example to raise awareness of dual use risks, particularly from converging technologies. But we were, of course, equally conscious that we needed to be responsible about how we raised that awareness. Uh, we didn't want to be alarmist about the threat. Um, we didn't want to draw too much attention to security vulnerabilities either. So our team spent a fair bit of time trying to find the right way to tell this story, to balance sounding the alarm with the potential information hazard. Um, and from the beginning, you know, our um, our main target audience was the practitioner community and the AI drug design community. And we chose our publication outlet accordingly. We published in, in Nature Machine Intelligence. Um, we didn't use sensationalist language. Uh, we left out certain specifics. We did a few things to sort of tailor to the, the information hazard risk that there certainly is with telling these stories. But I, I think we still managed to tell a very honest story and to convey some of the sense of unease that not just Sean and Fabio felt, but also that the security community that Cedric and myself are part of felt about the experiment. Our message, I think, in the in the article was clear that, you know, it is important to consider dual use and that the AI drug design community has a responsibility to do so. And then what we've tried to do, and we tried to end on, you know, practical notes, we tried to focus on the practicalities of well, what can the practitioner community do to address dual use risks and security concerns. And in the end, you know, I think we did a reasonable job. And I think most of the media coverage of our article and the thought experiment has been fair, fairly reasonable too, uh, in terms of striking that balance. And I think we were also able to grab the attention of the policy community in the right way, which then opened the door for engaging on these issues with the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, with the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, with the Australia Group, and with other international meetings, and hopefully through that engagement, prompting action in those venues too. Yeah, I was pretty shocked in the article follow-up to see that some of the responses had also included requests from quote-unquote some academics and government employees to see the compound structures that the model had generated. Um, it's obviously incredibly sensitive information with a lot of value to different actors for different reasons. Sean, did this change the way that Collaborations Pharmaceuticals thought about its own data security practices and protection of technologies? And did it change anything in practice? Yes, uh, the, I think the, the short answer to here is yes, it did. I mean, obviously, initially, uh, I didn't want to have access to the data even. I don't have access to the data even to this day. Fabio obviously secured it and encrypted the data. Uh, that was definitely a question that we were asked uh, when we spoke to the uh, White House uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy. They were, you know, that, I think that was kind of the first thing on their list of questions was basically, where is the data? Can we have it? And what are you doing to basically secure it? It obviously yeah, drove us to think about the security of, it, of this particular data set, but just in general, the security of the technologies and who should have access to them. 
because you know how do we control the use of them when we're not in the room and so to date fabio is the only person in the company i mean we're a small company anyway but he's the only person that's been uh, using the technology it's command line so that kind of you know increases the barrier to use anyway and so in, in securing it in that sense of thinking, all right, how do we restrict people to actually access the software? How do we eliminate access to the actual data set itself? Other than just removing the data set or deleting it, we felt that the, the next best thing was basically uh, to encrypt it. I, I mean, I, as I say, I don't have access to it. So if you know, someone was to ask me, you know, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't give you it. You know, I think ethically, it doesn't seem the right thing to give the data away. You know, obviously, academics, being academics, they want to look at the data, probe it. You know, you know, that's the natural response, right? And so, you know, the security implications of it is one thing. You know, I don't think we're, we're necessarily overreacting by not making the data available, but it, there's, there's a barrier to making these molecules anyway. So even if we did give the structure of the molecules, people are still going to have to figure out how to make them. We didn't you know reduce it to practice in that sense uh, we didn't even come up with the the explanation of how to make them and we didn't obviously make them so yes it did i mean the short answer is yes we responded i think you know initially the response that we had was appropriate in that you know i didn't want to do any more on this kind of project and it only recently as i said we've gone back to probe a little further into the actual data set so kind of reopen pandora's box and take another peek in a way but again you know it's only been fabio and myself internally that have done that we haven't got anyone else in involved but i think structurally in the company it, it caused a sort of pause of how do we make these technologies available inside the company in a way that we can control them more rigidly and obviously to make technology like this more available we have to make it sort of more web accessible inside the company because not everyone is going to be able to use command line kind of approaches. So that also then gives us a way to, to control access to it as well. You know, as I understand it, just to kind of hammer down on this point of why those tens of thousands of molecules generated are do hold such heavy implications, you know, there is the possibility that these previously unknown toxic agents could be made easier to generate right is that a fear as i understand it correctly uh yes that is one of the fears uh is you know potentially that some of these could be easier to make obviously several people have responded to our article by saying you know these are actually very difficult molecules to make anyway so it's unlikely that that's going to happen the other challenge we think uh, or the opportunity that this uh raised was that there may be a way to sort of circumvent uh, how to make molecules in terms of using precursor molecules that are not being watched currently uh, by different agencies. And, and I think that was a, a very real possibility as well. You know, what, when we went back and looked at the actual data, we found that uh, the precursors that uh, are actually used in the synthesis of VX and other chemical weapons were actually designed by the software as well. And although they didn't develop uh, or design other well-known chemical weapons like Novichox and sarin, they really explored the space around those molecules very well. And so that gives me also a sense of, you know, 
they're covering this chemical weapon space really well just by going after VX, even though they're not hitting you know, the molecules we know. So is it possible that some of these other molecules, these alternative analogs could also be easier to make, uh, potentially just as toxic, and also the synthetic steps to get to those final molecules may be uh, potentially easier. And the process that we had to design the molecules, it excluded the synthesizability piece of the equation, but we've developed software to do that as well, uh, as well as retrosynthesis software. You know, that's something that's plentiful out there as open source technology as well. Um, so many groups have developed these other pieces, you know, kind of other ingredients of this recipe, and it would be very trivial to add those together. So we could score those 40,000 molecules for synthesizability. We could also do the retrosynthesis to actually figure out how to make them. And you could then potentially rank the molecules by ease of synthesis, by, you know, the precursors availability, and also obviously avoid any precursors that are being watched. So in a way, it's kind of, you know, the path to making a molecule is pretty direct, A to B, could be multiple steps, but we may be able to find another way around, an alternative route to get there. And that was also something I think that um, we noted pretty early on, was that this, this capability is there, it's inherent in the approach. Yeah, so in other words, introducing the threat of circumventing a state's capacity to monitor the international community, make sure that other states are not developing bioweapons. That's correct, right? That That's correct. And obviously these are things that we had never given any thought to yeah. um, at all. And, and obviously with discussions with Philippa and Cedric and the rest of the, the folks on the SPEES conference, we, we, you know, we got a bit more of a sense of where this could go which was obviously eye-opening and you know, it, it was taking us into areas that were very uncomfortable and uh, well outside of you know our remit which is pretty much drug discovery right we're going to make molecules don't think about you know what's the easiest chemical weapon to make or you know how do we how do we narrow down the number of steps or avoid precursors these are not things that we tend to think about when we're doing drug discovery we don't worry about you know molecules and the precursors that are on watch lists right this isn't even in our vocabulary full stop so this has kind of opened a whole new world to us and you know i i feel very very fortunate to have guides uh, into this environment like philippa and cedric and, and they in a way i think are uh, kind of watching out for us um, and helping us you know, navigate as we as we move into this area, but it's been a huge learning curve, you know, in the terms of the terminology and thinking. And I, yeah, I didn't imagine that we would end up writing, you know, several things after this. You know, when I, when we had the invitation to the conference, I didn't think we would end up writing a paper just on a, you know, a presentation. So, but yeah, obviously, we've been able to take on a little bit more, and uh, it's opened a lot of doors and given us a lot of opportunity to present this work and hopefully uh, to raise awareness of this particular issue. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right. And so turning to discuss this particular issue more explicitly, Philippa, I know that you've published on dual use threats in other contexts. So first, can you explain the dual use dilemma, maybe with another example, and explain how governments have approached this threat historically? Sure. Dual use is not necessarily something you know what is right away, right? So, uh, and it can mean different things to different people. So the term dual use is is used in multiple contexts, um, and there are different concepts associated with the term. But for our purposes, dual use can broadly be defined as research or technology that has the potential to either help or to harm us. So it could be either used for good or for bad. Um, one of the very early examples that became widely discussed both in the media and in policy circles was the unexpected synthesis of a more virulent mousepox strain. So a couple of decades back, there were some Australian scientists who were working on pest control. And what they were trying to do was create a contraceptive vaccine to limit the number of mice. And they were working with mousepox, which is in the pox family related to horsepox and monkeypox and smallpox. And what they did was to insert a gene that enhances antibody production in mousepox. Now, unexpectedly, it turned out that the new virus was highly lethal in infected mice, including those that had been vaccinated against it. So without meaning to do so, they had found a way to increase the virulence of mousepox, make mousepox more dangerous, right? That experiment raised questions about genetic manipulation in general, um, but there were also specific concerns that similar experiments on other orthopox viruses like smallpox could potentially increase their virulence. So some warned that the experiment, which was eventually published, provided information that could be used to render the smallpox vaccine ineffective. So that was one of the very first kind of examples of, of dual use that was fairly accessible, I think, to people. Um, there have also been other prominent examples, uh, including the synthesis of horsepox just a couple of years ago or a few years ago, much earlier, the synthesis of polio. There have also been prominent examples with flu viruses, like the reconstruction of the 1918 flu virus, um, as well as gain-of-function studies with H5N1 flu virus in ferrets uh, a decade or so back. All of these examples 
uh, involve the physical, pretty much the physical synthesis of a biological agent or a manipulation of a biological agent. What our thought experiment did, or our dual use example does, or does differently from these previous examples, is that not only does it demonstrate the power of converging technologies, so life sciences with AI, but it also demonstrates that the dual use risks go beyond physical biological agents to also include things like AI and open source tools and data sets from the public domain. You, you also asked how governments have mitigated this threat historically. Well, traditionally, it's tended to fall under the purview of arms control and disarmament. And the biosecurity cornerstone of arms control is the Biological Weapons Convention, which is this nearly 50-year-old international treaty that prohibits biological weapons. And there are also other international agreements and measures that complement the Biological Weapons Convention. So these are instruments like the 1925 Geneva Protocol, which prohibits the use of biological weapons in war. There's the UN Security General Mechanism for Investigating chemical and biological weapons allegations. There's the UN Security Council Resolution 1540, which focuses on non-state actors. Uh, there's the Rome Statute uh, of the International Criminal Court, which makes uh, the use of biological weapons a war crime. And then there are other more tendential, but, but you know, still linked instruments like the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Convention of Biological Diversity. So, there, there's a lot going on in the kind of arms control and international security space. There are also some informal like-minded groupings of states that deal with biosecurity policy and coordination and that share much of the same ambition of dual-use governance. Uh, and most prominently here is the Australia group, which is one of the export control groups on that focuses on materials, equipment, and technology that could potentially be contributing to the development of biological weapons. So that's the kind of traditional frame in which dual use has been addressed. But more recently, it has become recognized that other tools are also needed to tackle dual, dual use risks. And there's been more emphasis on oversight of science. So things like lab bio-risk management, codes of conduct, instilling awareness and a sense of responsibility in individual scientists and in their institutions and funders and publishers. You know, education and awareness raising are crucial to these more bottom-up approaches. And it's really into these efforts that our thought experiment and um, publication fit in. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And I think it's interesting, right, zeroing back in on this idea of dual use being the capacity to take something that was originally, you know, designed for good and inverting it to, to use it for maybe more malicious purposes is particularly interesting with generative technologies with AI. And so I'm curious, Sean, had you heard about dual use potentiality prior to this experience? I hadn't. And um, yeah, I, I think the night I went into this ultimately naively. I, I really hadn't heard of the, the concept of dual use. I mean, I, I guess over the years, I've been aware of some of the examples Philippa mentioned um, where people had tried to, you know, come up with various viruses in the lab that were obviously, you know, 
not good to have around. I'd heard of some of those examples, but I hadn't heard of this sort of dual use concept. And obviously the work that we were doing, it hadn't come up before, you know, thinking about the various areas we worked on. There was really, you know, a few examples where we've been interested in looking at pesticides and the metabolism and trying to understand the pesticide metabolism, and then ultimately how that could be used to look at um, simulants and chemical weapon metabolism. But we hadn't even thought about thinking about the design of chemical weapons. We'd, we'd thought about, you know, how could the pesticide information be used to help us understand the metabolism of chemical weapons? I think it's one of those things where you're kind of blind to something. You just have your blinkers on and you just say, okay, what's the, the thing we're trying to aim for? You know, understand the metabolism of a molecule or try to find a, a molecule that will cure a particular disease or, you know, work against a particular virus. I mean, we, for several years, been working on identifying molecules that had antiviral properties for, you know, viruses like Ebola, Nipah, et cetera. And, you know, obviously some of these viruses could potentially be used as weapons, but that hadn't even registered either. And so you kind of have one of those shake your head moment where you think, what were, what were we thinking? What was I thinking? I wasn't thinking, right? I wasn't thinking about the potential where this technology could go in the same way that, you know, the social media and other technologies we have at our, at our fingertips, we don't think about the potential downsides of them until you're alerted to something um, or something happens. And so, yeah, I hadn't really thought about the negative implications of using AI in really any context. And this obviously now opened up a whole nother area where, yes, we've been doing some work in how we can use the generative tools to make molecules. And, you know, 99.99% of that is obviously positive applications. And now a very small percentage of it is gathering so much visibility kind of out of scale using those same technologies. So to, to put, kind of put you on the map in a sense that we were never on before. And, you know, that's a good and a bad thing in some ways. But the awareness of dual use, yeah, it wasn't there at all, Tia. It, was, it wasn't even part of the vocabulary until we gave this presentation. I mean, I, I was just thinking misuse, right? Misuse was the word, right? And even misuse, why would you misuse a technology? Like, because you're trying to make things work better. You're always driven to make a better model whether that's an in vitro model or an in silico model, you're not really trying to misuse those technologies. I mean, honestly, ethically, you want to try to make something better. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't even a word that was there. I mean, I don't think I've ever written any papers or articles or anything with the words dual use in until we wrote this particular small comment. And now obviously dual use is in the vocabulary. Yeah. So kind of like Filippo was saying right there, all of these international agreements, biological weapons convention trying to prohibit the production, the development of biological weapons, as well as the use. But also there is this component of protecting international security that comes from education, comes from awareness, which is the value that this article brings. So to follow up along that line, Sean, do you think private companies share responsibility in taking protective measures against dual use threats? Um, do you think that there, I guess, needs to be more of that on this line? Uh, yeah, I think the, 
The short answer is absolutely. Uh, I mean, it wasn't something that we had thought about, but obviously once we realized uh, that this technology could do this, you know, you very quickly think, well, we're just one company and there's potentially hundreds of companies that are in this whole space of using AI for drug discovery. And many of them are using generative tools. And so that's potentially there already hundreds of people that could have access to these kinds of capabilities. So how do you manage that, right? So, you know, could these companies be self-policing the technologies? Absolutely. You know, that wasn't something that we proposed, like the, that each company has to police it themselves. But I think we, we should be training people uh, with that uh, knowledge that the tools that they're using in their day-to-day -day job to design molecules that could be useful therapeutically uh, could also be very quickly flipped and misused. And so, yes, the companies now have to, I think, take that on board, not dismiss it, um, and just realize, okay, the reality is if you're going to apply these technologies and get a lot of visibility and funding for using those technologies, then you also need to think responsibly about how we can make sure that the people that have access to them don't ultimately use them to make things like chemical weapons or you know, illegal drugs or whatever. And I think... That was my biggest concern initially, you know, alongside the, the potential where the technology could go is, well, the reputational risk. Uh, if something bad happens in one company, how is that now going to affect all the other companies that are using AI for drug discovery? And pretty quickly, could you get a domino effect? And, and I think that was yeah, at the back of my mind really early on. And that was presented as well at, at the conference. You know, that, that thinking of, well, we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot or we could shoot ourselves in the foot if this uh, gets out to the point where, you know, one bad actor changes the whole scenario, right? It just takes one person in isolation to use these technologies to do something that gets visibility or they do something that causes uh, deaths or, you know, it gets to that point where there's a trigger and, and then the, I think people would look on the whole field in a different light and that could negatively impact funding. It could negatively impact people's perceptions of the industry. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry as it is already doesn't have a great, you know, I guess reaction when you come to people, right? They, they tend to think of a, as a, a pretty bad light because of all of the, the work on, you know, oxy and, you know, drugs that have been now abused and farmers overcharging and things like that. So all you need is one more thing and it just sort of, you know, how low could it go? So I think for us, how do we keep this in a positive light is important. How do we ensure that companies do police it? Right. So I wanna drive into this specific example a bit more. Philippa, what's the hypothetical of the fear here? Could you walk us through how something like an export control could mitigate it? Is it fair you know, to say that we're mainly talking about state actors with malintent getting access to generative software like this and using it to create new bioweapons perhaps more easily or to evade detection like we discussed earlier? I ask because it seems to me like any state with the capacity to actually engineer these molecules would also be able to build out its own model using machine learning in a similar way to Megasyn. Is that a faulty assumption? Well, unfortunately, I, I don't think that's actually a, a faulty assumption, but I would highlight that there is some way to go between engineering a molecule and, and having a weapon. And I think it's also worth saying that 
we not only have international law prohibiting chemical and biological weapons, and that nearly all countries in the world are signed up to those, but that there is also a pretty strong worm against the use of chemical and biological weapons. Uh, on the biological side, there is no country that openly possesses biological weapons or, or even claims that biological weapons are required for their national security in sharp contrast to nuclear weapons, for example. And there's no verified public reporting that any country is maintaining uh, a biowarfare program. So again, we've got to keep this within a certain perspective, right? But at the same time, we do have this very rapidly evolving toolbox to, to modify genes and organisms. And, and together with advances in machine learning, in automation, in robotics, in cloud computing, in nanotechnology, you name it, that all carries potentially large security risks. And the biggest concern is that should the intent be there, and that is an important should, right? then these developments could enable new kinds of biological weapons that are more capable, that are more accessible with attacks that can be more precisely targeted and, and that could be harder to attribute in the end. It could be harder to say who, who's done it. So one concern is that highly skilled um, and trained scientists or technicians could use their knowledge to create biological weapons under the guise of legitimate research. And this is the so-called insider threat. The equally, if not more significant security concern that you pointed out, Tia, is that of interested outsiders. So such as, you know, national militaries or state-sponsored groups who could exploit legitimate scientific advances for hostile purposes. This is a real risk. This, this kind of risk is something that scientists, that technicians and, and drug discovery companies uh, like collaboration pharmaceuticals must be sensitive to. They are part of what needs to be our response to this risk. It's not just this traditional framing of export controls and biological weapons convention, which targets states and governments, but we also need to have this response at the individual uh, and institutional level. Absolutely. Sean, do you have anything to add to that? I, I do know that we've sort of opened, as I said, this Pandora's box and there's no going back in our field, at least. And so I think now the, the challenge is how do we make companies that are much bigger than ours aware of this capability and ensure that they are taking steps in the same way that we are? You know, I don't think we can do this alone. We're a, a very small company with a very small voice. Um, and there's much bit bigger voices out there. So how do we magnify what we've put out there to the point where everyone is aware of it? I think that's really the next stage. You know, what we've done ultimately has got some visibility, but I don't necessarily think that it's got through to the companies yet. And obviously we're trying to give more presentations and write more articles to try to, you know, I guess, bang the bell, you know, just ring the bell, make people aware that, um, this is something that they, they should have on the horizon in the same way that, you know, we didn't, we didn't have it in front of us as something we had to think about as we're developing these technologies. Everyone is developing them pretty much in isolation, but actually there's a whole ecosystem here that's ultimately being developed. And I think we thought about how it could be put together in a way that would be malicious and, and, you know, probably other people are thinking that as well. So we need to be aware of that and make sure that they're actually not misused. 
it's it's pretty heavy in the sense of oh my goodness where have we what have we done uh yeah and and i think you know we've tried to come up with some recommendations of how to how to address this and and not just say hey there's a problem out there right you know kind of the horse is bolted but we can try to close the gate right to to wrap things up what's the main lesson here and philippa specifically what types of steps would you like to see the international community and state policymakers taking to protect against dual use of generative software moving forward, you know, maybe say over the next five years? Well, for me, there's no simple answer to guard against lines of inquiry, you know, that could inadvertently support the development of weaponry, whether that be in your own country or in other countries. Certainly, as you point out, some of the work needs to be done by governments and policymakers focused on international security, and we need to shore up and strengthen both the Biological Weapons Convention, export control regimes, and all of these sorts of things. Also in science policy, uh, it's important to to raise awareness of the need for security in the biological and life sciences to, you know, promote research integrity, to foster cultures of responsibility, to develop sound accountability practices, all those kinds of things are, are really important. But, you know, this is the story we're telling here is, I think, very much one of an individual company and the particular individuals involved. And so I think it's important for us to emphasize also the role of individual scientists, because part of the work has to be done by individual scientists. It's, it's senior scientists and principal investigators in particular that play a fundamental role in developing layers of protection against abuse because it is scientists who conceive and implement their ideas. Um, they're the first line of control for assessing and mitigating risks. And although scientists are incentivized to consider, articulate, and defend the potential benefits of their research, they also have an obligation to consider and mitigate any risks that could potentially lead their research to be used for harmful purposes. And, and as you've heard through our conversation today, many scientists are unaware of their individual responsibility for managing security risks associated with their research. Of course, some scientists may be aware of that responsibility, but lack the knowledge to, to deal with it or lack relationships. They don't know who where to turn, who to go to, or they might simply lack, you know, the will to fulfill that responsibility. So I guess for me, this is really a story about raising awareness, making that light bulb go off and sensitizing researchers, scientists, technicians to these kinds of concerns. And I think the wider lesson has got to be about the importance of raising awareness and develop not just raising awareness, but also developing tools to support these kinds of risk assessments uh, that individual scientists need to make. Because it's not fair just to say, well, this is your problem. You do it. We also need to develop tools to help support them uh, do that. Absolutely. Sean, if you have anything to add. Please hop in. Uh, it's been an enlightening discussion. The, the, I guess, you know, it's coming up to nearly a year since we really embarked upon this journey. And uh, I think we're really just beginning, honestly. Um, we've obviously done 
as about as much as we possibly could as our, our little team of four uh, to try to put this out there and make people aware of it and try to come up with recommendations. I think this will continue to run. I think the challenge is obviously we're going to see now much more visibility for generative technologies. We're already starting to see that with image generators like DALI online. I don't think people have really thought about the implications even of, of those kinds of tools in the image generation in the same way that we never thought about how these generative tools could be used in, in this particular space, right? And the dual use of them. So I think we're potentially hitting a nerve at about the right time. Obviously the global actions that were happening in between Russia and Ukraine at the same time, obviously also alerted people to the potential of uh, could chemical weapons be used? And so the story coming out at the, the right time with all of these things happening, you know, globally, technologically, you know, the perfect storm, right? In some ways. And it's unclear, I think, as to where it's going to ultimately go. Ultimately, the, the community scientists, policy experts that are in this space, they now have really a teachable moment that they didn't have before. And I think the recognition on, of what we've done in a very small way could have a potential positive role. You know, that keeps me going. I think it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that we did. It's actually a very useful thing. As Philippa said, it's now raising awareness for how these technologies could potentially be, be misused in this kind of environment. And that's an important thing. And so, yes, you know, I keep that in the back of my mind that we stumbled into this. We were very naive. It's changed the way that we are doing things in, in the company. As Philippa said, you know, as individual scientists, we have that responsibility. If it wasn't on our radar before, it's definitely on our radar now. And now I think, you know, part of my role was to obviously educate other scientists. So, you know, I, I head off into the weekend to go to a scientific conference, American Chemical Society, to give a presentation on this story. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be other people with questions and potential ways that we could solve it. So yeah, watch this space. I think the story is still developing. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end it there, but we will certainly be watching the space. Philippa Lenzos and Sean Akins, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us and look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest series on the government's response to January 6th. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag. A watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.